Well, good morning and happy new year. Yeah, welcome to the first worship service of the new year. And we also want to welcome the folks that are joining us online as well. Last night, at, at last night's service, I, I told everyone that, you know, we're standing on the doorstep of a brand new year. Well, I, I can't say that this morning because we're not on the doorstep. We've taken a step inside the door, right? And, uh, but we still have a brand new year that is stretching out before us. And there's something exciting about that because it's going to present us with new opportunities. But there's also something scary about that because uh, of the uncertainty of what else might happen. As is the case in any year, there's ups and there's downs, there's victories and there's um, struggles. And I would venture to guess that 2023 will be somewhat similar, you know, and, and with it being the unknown because it involves the future, I think it would be a good way for us as a church family to begin the new year by calling upon the one who does know the future and who controls the future and to seek his blessing in his direction in this new year. So we're going to have a time of prayer here in a moment, but I just want to remind you of something that periodically I try to remind myself about. And that is this thing, this biblical thing called stewardship. Usually when we think about stewardship, we apply that to stuff like money, that we need to be good stewards and giving. And, and that is a, a good application of the principle that's taught in Scripture. But we also apply it to our talents, our abilities that we have, that we need to be good stewards of whatever our skill set is that, that we've been gifted with. But we also need to be good stewards in regards to time. We have 12 months standing in front of us right now, 52 weeks. And we need to practice good stewardship. And another way of saying that is that God will be honored in this church over the next 12 months and that God will be honored in your family unit and in your life individually over these next 52 weeks. Let's practice good stewardship. We're right at the very front end of it. Most of us have slept a few hours. You know, there's a couple I can see back there that probably were up all night and just came here on their way home, but otherwise, <laughs> Otherwise, we're just a few hours into it, but let's be good stewards with the opportunities because there will be opportunities that will come your way. And might God be glorified through those opportunities and might his kingdom be advanced. So let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity we have to start off a brand new year in the right way by spending some time together as a family of believers, exalting you, shining the spotlight brightly on you. But Lord, I pray that that will happen in more ways than just in a Sunday morning worship service, but that that'll happen daily in our lives, in the choices we make, in the encounters that we have. Lord, might you be glorified and might you use us as a positive influence in helping get that all-important message of the gospel out there and introducing people to you. Thank you for all the opportunities that lie before us, and I pray, Lord, that you will give us the sensitivity to recognize them when they surface and the boldness to seize them. May it all be for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. We love inspiring stories. Inspiring stories have a way of brightening our day. They kind of have a, a way of putting a skip in our step, I guess you could say. When someone overcomes all odds that are stacked up against them, that catches our attention. We can't help but notice that. When someone out of nowhere appears on the scene and accomplishes what nobody else has been able to accomplish before them, that's the sort of thing that causes us to sit up and take notice. 
and want to know more about. There was a time, not that many years ago, within the lifetime of some of the folks that are a part of this church, that the four-minute mile was thought to be an impossibility. There's no way a human being, their body, can run that fast. A lot of people ran close to that time, but to beat that, there were some even that speculated that to, to actually break a four-minute mile, your heart would not be able to uh, survive that. It would explode. It would, it, would, it would freeze up or something or other. But then there came that time in 1954 when a British fellow by the name of Roger Bannister did just that. He ran a mile in less than four minutes. It was unbelievable. Everybody around the world was catching the news. The irony of that, though, is within 30 days of when Roger Bannister did that, there were three other people that broke a four-minute mile. Before the one-year anniversary rolled around, there were 37 people that broke the four-minute mile. In the second year following that, there were over 300 people that broke the four-minute mile. You talk about the power of inspiration. You know, and that, that, that serves as a great case in point. When we look in the Bible, you see examples of the, uh, similar type stuff. Because we get inspired by it. I think about the young guy that stepped out into the valley to face off against a giant warrior of a man, a seasoned veteran of battles that stood over nine feet tall. Yeah, Goliath. When David stepped out there, nobody thought he could do what he was getting ready to tackle. In fact, just the, the mere appearance of Goliath and hearing his thundering voice every morning and every evening as, as the Philistines and the Israelites would line up on either side of the valley, it struck fear throughout the ranks of Israel's army, including King Saul. But then David said, I'll go. He volunteered. He had never fought in a battle before. Oh, yeah, he had fought off predators when he was protecting his dad's sheep, but, but he had never done anything like this. And yet when he went out there, even though the, the Philistine had his spear and his sword and his shield and all of that, David went out there with a sling and a handful of stones. And he did the incredible. He did the unthinkable. What no one thought was possible. And isn't it interesting that in the years that followed that, as recorded in Scripture, and you'll read this in, in the, the recordings of the Chronicles of the Old Testament, that it gives examples of, of some of, some of um, the men that served under David, that they rose up and did similar things. Because Goliath, he had family, he had relatives. And there were others that some of... David's right hand and left hand men in, in his service, they rose up and accomplished similar feats. But it's because, I believe, the inspiration that came from David. I think about another situation, story that is found in Scripture about a young guy who uh, kind of got a raw deal from his brothers. He was beat up, and as though that were not bad enough, he was sold to some traveling Merchants, he ends up being a servant in a household in a foreign land. And after some time in that capacity, there ends up being some false charges drummed up against him. And he gets thrown into prison, not for just weeks or months, but for a few years. And you'd think that situation went from bad to worse. What hope is there? And yet God used him, and I'm talking about Joseph, in an incredible way that all of what preceded it was just setting up something inspirational and we read stories like that and they have a way of igniting within us thoughts of the possibilities of how god might one day use us but 
In contrast to all of that, the Bible also contains some other stories that are far less than inspirational. The kind of stories that are disappointing, the kind that leave you shaking your head. I think about a husband and a wife. That's recorded in Acts chapter 5, who for whatever crazy reason thought that pulling one over on the, their church was a smart idea. They, they had seen Barnabas sell some of his land and give the proceeds to the leaders of the church to be distributed however was needed within the fellowship of the church. And this couple, you might recognize their names, Ananias and Sapphira. They said, you know what? Wouldn't it be cool to get that kind of attention, get those pats on the back, to be liked that much? And so they sell some of their land. But they plan to hold some back, and they do. They stash it somewhere, and then they present the, whatever's left, which we're not told percentages or anything like that. They present what's left and say, here's all the money that we got for our land. The Holy Spirit obviously saw through all of that. The final chapter of their lives kind of leaves us feeling empty inside. There's nothing inspiring about what you're reading there in Acts chapter 5. There's another individual in the Bible that, uh, in fact, I'll throw this name out, and it'll probably be in the minority of people in here who will recognize the name and know where it's found in the Bible. And it's found in more than one place. It's Demas. A fellow named Demas. And we don't, most of us don't really remember that because uh, what we read about him isn't really memorable. I mean, it's not something that you want to put a whole lot of effort into remembering. But it's one example of an individual that was clearly less than inspiring. He's mentioned three times in the New Testament. The first time is in Paul's little short letter that's called Philemon. And in verses 23 and 24, Paul wrote this. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. Now, one, one of the uh, features of some of these letters in the New Testament is there, there are these greetings that are given. You know, that, you, you know, whoever's with me, I'm writing this letter to someone else, and I'll say, oh, so-and-so says hi, and so-and-so says hi, and that's included in the letter, and you'll see that in the New Testament. But you'll also see it on the other end. It's like, oh, be sure and greet so-and-so as well, and make sure so-and-so knows I say hi, and and that sort of thing. And that's kind of what's happening here in this little short letter of Philemon. It doesn't really tell us a whole lot other than that I think it's pretty safe to assume that what's being implied here is that Paul held Demas, along with these other guys, in high esteem. He viewed Demas as being a co-worker of his you know, in the task of getting the gospel message out, which clearly is a value that Paul had. And so Demas, he's basically saying, shares in that value. There's another second time that Demas appears, and this is in Colossians chapter 4, where Paul writes, Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas greets you. So it's really not saying much else. It's right around the same time Philemon was written that Colossians was written. So anyway, Demas is still with Paul, however much time has passed. And so he's sending a greeting on Demas's behalf. But then the third time, the third and final time that we read the name Demas being brought up in Scripture, this is the one. Things start getting real disappointing. It's found in Paul's last letter, his letter to Timothy, second letter. In chapter 4, he says this, Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. And that's it. It doesn't say any more. 
you know, in addition to that. Now, I will add that this is about six years later than the other two passages, if you're looking at a timeline. So here it is about six years later, and Paul is in prison when he is writing this letter, and he's, he's saying about Demas that, that Demas has deserted him. We're not given a whole lot of details. We're hardly given any details, but it's clear that something happened. What started out so promising regarding this fellow named Demas ended sadly. He deserted Paul at a time when Paul's needs would have been among some of the greatest needs that he had during his life. He's in prison, so he's got all kinds of limitations and everything. And, and being able to have somebody around, whether it be to carry messages or, or just attend to some of his physical needs and stuff, you know, was of critical importance. But it's in the middle of that timing that Demas chooses to turn and walk away. Probably a number of things played into that as far as Demas is concerned, but one of them clearly is his love for the world because that's what's brought up in that passage. You know, more than once, the Bible warns us about that very thing, about our love for the world. John, in um, his first letter, chapter 2, he said this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a big statement there. We're talking about the world, the world system, the world values, all of that. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we have a warning being given us about the very thing that, that Demas fell into. Here's another one, James chapter 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Again, we're talking about the world's values and, and all here. And what a contrast that stands in view of God's values. Demas is an example of someone who failed to finish well. Okay, that's what I'm trying to establish here this morning. Demas is an example of someone who failed to finish well. He started out well, very promising, but he failed to finish well. His attachment to the things of God, little by little, fell by the wayside. And a big part of that was that his focus had shifted. His love for the world grew, and as it did, his interest in serving the Lord declined. It eroded away until eventually he turned his back and he walked away. The text in 2 Timothy 4 specifically said that he went to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica, it was a large city. It was a wealthy, cosmopolitan city. So there was something apparently about Thessalonica that, that lured him, that, that caught his attention. We don't know how long he wrestled internally, you know, with all of that, kind of that internal tug-of-war thing, how long that was going on. But eventually, it won out, and he turned and walked away. We stand right here, just one step into a brand new year. We have an entire year stretched out in front of us, every one of us, and as a church family as well. And I share this about Demas in order to say that what happened to Demas could also happen to you if you let your guard down. I mean, he started out so promising. And Paul specifically was drawing reference to that in his letters but he didn't have the staying power. He didn't stick it out. It's not like he is a, a total anomaly. There's a reason that you find multiple verses in the New Testament warning us about this very thing. I'll just give you a handful quickly here. In Peter's second letter, he wrote this. These false teachers left the right road and lost their way. 
following the way that Balaam went. Balaam is a reference to a story that's in the Old Testament. Balaam was the son of Beor who loved being paid for doing wrong. But what I want you to notice here is that Peter, as he's writing to these Christians who had been scattered because of persecution, that's the whole uh, basis on which First and Second Peter stands, is it's not written just to a church, it's written to Christians that have gone through some real hardships in their life, and they're scattered, they lost their homes and all of this. But as he's writing to them, he's referencing some false teachers that a number of those people were familiar with. But notice what he says about those false teachers. At one point in time, they were apparently on the right road. But that first sentence is the giveaway. They didn't stay on that road. They left the right, right road and lost their way. Here's another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy is a young preacher that Paul had um, um, sent to Ephesus in a new church that Paul had started that he wanted uh, Timothy to, as a pastor, to do the things to finish up some of the work that Paul hadn't been able to get to. And so Paul is writing words of instruction to a young pastor. That's what First and Second Timothy were all about. Well, look at what he says right out of the gates in chapter 1 of his first letter. He says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. So he's not just going to say, well, there's some people that have done this. He's being pretty specific. He's mentioning a couple of the people by name. But you look at that phrase, shipwrecked their faith. You get a real visual in mind with that phrase. And he's saying that this is what some people have done. Why? Because they didn't fight the good fight. They didn't hold on to faith. And as a result, they shipwrecked their faith. In the second letter that he wrote to Timothy, Paul said this, Work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer, as is the case with, here's that name again, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They have left the path of truth. So what, what we see is we see a number of different passages of Scripture that talk about this very thing. You know, as though it's possible to drift to drift away in your faith. In fact, a different writer in the New Testament said that very thing. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must therefore pay even more attention, and that's getting to the idea of focus. We've got to stay focused to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away. That verse would not be in the Bible unless it was a possibility for a person to drift away in their faith. And so this is why we need to sit up and we need to take notice of this. I know it's not inspirational to talk about people like Demas, but yet we need to be aware of this because the eventual possible outcome can be tragic. In the very next chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Is it possible to fall away from God? If I'm going to read the Bible, I've got to answer yes, it is. It says it right there in the New American Standard Bible is one of the most literal translations, word for word, of Scripture. Yeah, there's a message here. And it's one that's repeated in multiple places. In fact, let me show you an example of a time when this was in the process of happening. People were losing their edge as far as their spiritual conviction was concerned, and Jesus noticed it, and Jesus had something to say about it. 
Although this is coming in a part of the Bible that you may not realize. This is after Jesus' crucifixion, after his resurrection, after he ascended into heaven. This is found in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are the seven letters written to the churches. And one of those churches is in Laodicea. And here's what Jesus said there. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's the Christian Standard Bible terminology there. Some other translations say, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarmness. You see, they had lost their edge. They weren't what they once were. Because at one point in time, apparently they were on fire for the Lord. But that's not the case anymore. Now, something that is of interest that makes this passage even more meaningful is that Laodicea just uh, was a few miles away from a couple other towns, you know, uh, by the name of uh, Colossa and Hierapolis. And these other towns are noteworthy um, because they had things that Laodicea didn't have. And Laodicea, you know, they, they were well-to-do and and, uh, and they wanted some of this. For example, Colossa um, was well-known. They had a reputation for their pure, cold water. And so Laodicea, being about six or seven miles away from them, they, they created these aqueducts that, that would help transport that water all that distance to Laodicea so they could be tapping into this cold, pure water. Now, this other town, Hierapolis, going a different direction, they were well-known, had a good reputation for their hot springs. And Laodicea wanted some of that as well. And so they did something very similar in being able to create a means by which that water, you know, could be brought to Laodicea. But I would imagine you're ahead of me on this. By the time that cold, fresh water got to Laodicea, by the time the hot springs water got to Laodicea, after traveling all those miles, it was lukewarm. So they didn't really accomplish what, it, what they were intending to. So it, it was uh, uh, frustrating, to say the least. Well, Jesus is building upon that. He knows that everybody in Laodicea is aware of that whole endeavor and how that didn't really work out right. And then Jesus is saying that is similar to the story of what I see in the church. He's talking about the church in Laodicea. That the church in Laodicea had lost their edge. They weren't hot. They weren't on fire. They weren't, weren't one or the other, hot or cold. They were just lukewarm. They hadn't always been that way. But unfortunately, that's where they were at now. And so if you go just a couple verses later than that in the text, you'll see in verse 19, Jesus is calling them to repentance. And of course, the word repent means to change. That's the primary meaning behind the word, to change. Don't just keep going the course that you're going right now. There are some changes that need to uh, be taking place. And so Jesus called upon them to make that change. And then Jesus made this statement. And I would imagine the vast majority of us in this room are at least to a degree familiar with the verse I'm going to show you. It's right in the text. The thing is, there's perhaps an aspect of this verse that you're not familiar with. In verse 20, Jesus said this, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. You know, in, in old times, there's a, a couple of famous painters that, that actually put this in their artwork. And uh, the way they featured it is, is Jesus standing at a door and knocking. But the thing that you may notice if you really look at the details of the painting is that there's no doorknob on the side of the door that Jesus is at. It can only be opened from the inside. 
Now, of course, we can make the argument that if Jesus wanted to get through that door, he could get through that door, doorknob or not, right? But that's the point, is that Jesus isn't going to force his way into a person's life, into a person's heart. There has to be a decision made by the person themselves. And there you see it in that verse. Now, more times than not, when we go to this verse and when we quote this verse, we're using it and talking about it in reference to unbelievers. We're talking about people who are outside of Christ, people who haven't accepted the gospel, haven't been saved. And even though the principle is true that Jesus you know, if they'll just let him into their life, then he'll change everything. He'll save them. Even though that's true, that's not what this verse is referring to. It's not talking about unbelievers. It's talking about church folk. People that are a part of a church. But yet, now Jesus finds himself kind of on the outside. And if I could be as bold as to paraphrase that statement a little bit i'd maybe say it along these lines that jesus is knocking on the door and he's saying please let me back in and what all played out to cause him to be on the outside of the door i don't know but with demas we got a little bit of an idea So yeah, this, this whole thing, it's not an anomaly as far as Demas is concerned. You see it found in multiple places. Jesus, in fact, sounded the warning early in his ministry after he was calling some of his um, apostles, some of the d disciples that became known as the apostles. Jesus uh, taught in parable form. And one of the parables that he taught is found here in Mark chapter 4. It's found in multiple gospels. It's the parable of the sower. And it's where Jesus tells about a sower that is sowing seed, and some of the seed falls along the path, which is very hard. It doesn't penetrate. Birds come, snatch it up. Has no effect on the soil. Some other of the seed falls on rocky soil, and it sprouts, and it grows some roots and it shoots up and looks promising enough but when the sun comes out and there's a lack of moisture it is basically scorched and it withers up and dies and bears no fruit another one of the soils is the thorny soil and this is the seed that fell among thorns and and it sprouted up and looked promising but the thorns choked it out so that it wasn't productive and didn't bear any fruit and then, of course, the fourth soil is the good soil where the seed sprouted and, and bore fruit. But basically, in that parable Jesus was telling, the second soil and the third soil would fit into the whole subject matter of what I'm talking about here today. Because Demas basically represents the thorny soil. That he got preoccupied, he lost his focus. And he didn't end up bearing fruit for the Lord. I remember when I was a young pastor. I was still in my 20s, my late 20s. I, I was a senior pastor um, of a church, the only other church I ever served full time uh, in Illinois, other than this church. And, and uh, um, we would have week-long revivals. So every September, we would invite someone to come, and, and they basically preached like seven sermons, you know, through the week. And, and uh, you know, and we always had good crowds and everybody showing up for the church uh, services and, and, and plenty of food, lots of food that week. It wasn't a good, good week if you were on a diet. There was so much food because you not only had it right after the services every night, but you were invited to people's homes every lunch, and they wanted to impress the revival speaker, and of course, the preacher was tagging along, and, and lots of food that week. But we had this one guy um, one year, his name was Max. He came and did a very effective job, good speaker, and he had some ties to the community because about 15 years earlier, he had been the pastor at this church. 
that I was pastoring. And uh, it was back in the early 70s when he was there. And in fact, uh, he, he was largely the one that was used by the Lord to, to cause that church to go from being a small town, small church to being a small town, double the size of town church. Um, and uh, uh, very effective in his ministry, both then and when he left and went to Columbia to pastor in a church there. Well, anyway, so Max and I, during the day, we would go to people's homes and just drop in. Most of those were drop-ins that were unannounced. And uh, people that I knew or people that he remembered from 15 years earlier, we would drop in and just invite them to come out in the evening to the revival services and hopefully put in a good, you know, spiritual word and encouragement with them. And as we were driving around, I remember on multiple occasions, Max saying, oh, look over across that field. See that house over there? Oh, so-and-so used to live there. Man, she was a real spark plug in the church. And I'd say, oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. I've talked to her multiple times, but, boy, she is totally indifferent toward church. She has a couple kids now. And that's what I'm trying to encourage her, to get her kids plugged in to things in the church as well. But I'm not making any headway at all. And I could just see on Max's face the disappointment, the sadness that came over. Because he had such great things to say about how on fire for the Lord she was 15 years earlier. And a very similar conversation played out multiple times throughout that week as he would talk about different individuals. And some of the times I knew the individuals because they were still in the community. And uh, I thought, well, that's not quite the story anymore with that person. That's really sad. It was sad for him and it was sad for me. To be hearing that but again it illustrates the point of what it is that I'm saying here this morning you see what the Bible is communicating to us is that faithfulness should last a lifetime it should last a lifetime so clearly as we were here one step into a brand new year it should last this entire year but however many other years unfold after this year that you're still walking here on this on this planet faithfulness needs to be a part of your life it needs to be a continued part of my life let me show you the attitude as it was modeled in paul's life and and paul we think of him as you know he wrote so much of the new testament and we we think of him as being a, a man that's really close to god and loved the lord and but i want to give you an inside glimpse of his attitude of what was going on on the inside of the way Paul thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Now, he's not talking about Roger Bannister. He's not talking about an actual foot race. He's talking about the Christian life here, and he's drawing an analogy. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Yeah, you know, and we hear that and we consider who it is that is writing that and we're just like, what, Paul? Why would you be concerned about that? But you see, Paul's saying, I'm not going to take anything for granted. I'm not going to run the risk of slacking off. I'm going to continue to invest myself and be focused and, and, and exert effort and intensity in my service to the Lord because I don't want to come up short at the end. That's basically what Paul is saying in that passage. But he compares it to being like a race. Here's another passage that the writer of Hebrews, he uses some similar type terminology. 
He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So again, he's talking about focus. He's talking about perseverance. He's talking about don't allow yourself to get tripped up as you run this race, live the Christian life. Don't allow yourself to get tripped up in that. But there's this interesting phrase he uses. He says, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, who's that in reference to? One of the the best rules of thumb in trying to understand a statement that is found in Scripture is to allow the context to shed light on that statement. So read the surrounding verses. And what you'll end up seeing is what he just got done talking about in chapter 11. And remember, the Bible wasn't originally written in chapter divisions. Okay, So in chapter 11, he's talking about how without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then chapter 11 contains like 10 to 20 examples of people that lived in noteworthy lives of faith who lived for God and pleased God with the lives that they lived. And after having listed out all of those examples that are found in the pages of the Old Testament, he says this, since, therefore, since, based on what I just said, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And then he starts using this race terminology. And it's kind of like a stadium. And you got the athletic events and and people that are involved in those out on the field, and you got people in the stands cheering them on. You know, stadiums and stuff like that, that's not just a modern era sort of thing. That was around back at the time of the first century. Now, oftentimes, in, in some of the ruins of some, some of the old cities and all, they still find some of these coliseums and, and, and the seating and everything that was a part of that. And so what he seems to be indicating, if we're not mistaken, is almost like there is some level of awareness of people that have already lived their lives and run through the finish line and have received their reward and that they now are cheering us on. Now, it's debatable at what level their awareness is. But when you look at a passage like this, you can't help but think, well, there's some level of awareness. And when you look in passages like Luke chapter 15 that says, every time a sinner repents, there is rejoicing in heaven that takes place. Yeah, I think there's some level of awareness in heaven of what is happening down here. But in this passage, it's talking about those who have successfully run the race and remained faithful to the Lord and that they're cheering us on that we might remain focused and run with due diligence. And in doing so, might we be careful that we don't underestimate the importance of the basics, like what we're doing right now. I mean, maybe you had to put forth a bit of effort because you had a short night's sleep last night. You know, I'm one of those people. I got up this morning when I was driving down my street to come here, I was seeing fireworks and stuff like that you know, laying in the street. And I'm like, I didn't know any of that happened. You know, I mean, I I just slept through all of that. But maybe you're one of the people that was out there doing that. And uh, so you had a short night. And so it took a little bit of more effort to be here today. Well, don't underestimate the importance of that investment in coming and being a part of gatherings like this. The fellowship, rubbing shoulders with other believers, joining in 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 community worship with with uh, uh, the household of faith and that would include uh, small groups as well whether that be in a living room or whether that be in one of the rooms here in this building and the opportunities to to again rub shoulders with other people who are living lives of conviction and faith you know, Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And so, so there's some real benefit there. It's one of the very basic elements of living the Christian life. And we need one another. So, so don't think that you don't need settings like this. 
or settings of small groups or time spent in prayer and what that does for your focus helps keep you focused or getting plugged into ministry you know paul says um, never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor romans chapter 12 verse 11 but the way he ends that verse is he says by serving the lord so stay plugged in be investing yourself in ministry, these are all some of the basic elements, you know, of being a Christian. Don't look past them and think, well, I don't need that anymore. I did that for 15 years. I don't need that anymore in my life. Don't be playing that game because then you very well could be flirting around with the Demas effect. You don't want to run that risk. Stay plugged in. Stay active in your faith. This reminds me of a fella, a legendary coach. Some of you recognize him by his face in this picture or by his sweater where it says UCLA. This is a picture of John Wooden. And he was coaching at UCLA, coaching basketball back when I was at a young age, beginning to really be interested in things like basketball and football. And uh, so John Wooden, he was one of the first ones on the radar, you know, that I sat up and took notice of. He, he coached at UCLA for 27 years. And at one stretch in time, his teams won 88 games in a row. That, that bridges multiple years where they didn't lose. He won 10 national championships during the time that he was coaching at UCLA. Well, and you could ask the players whether toward the beginning of that 27-year run or toward the end of it, you could ask them, and, and all of them would basically repeat something very similar to this, that at the very first meeting of, of that year, that season's basketball team, he would sit everybody down and he would emphasize the importance of the little things. For example, one of the first things he talked about every year was about putting forth extra time and effort in the way you put your socks on and the way you tie your shoes. And then while all these people, which included the likes of people like Bill Walton, and at that time he was named Lou Alcindor and you know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, some, some of these guys that had played for him, here John Wooden is, with a bare foot showing him how to put a sock on and saying, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do that. This is the way you want to do it. And then he would lace up a shoe and he would be coaching them on how to put shoes and socks on. You can't argue against the success that he had as a coach. Focusing on the importance of the basics. And that's what I would say today is don't leave out the basics of living the Christian life. A number of years ago, I came to the realization of something. I came to the realization that as a pastor, my role isn't primarily to come up with something new and fresh every time I get up and speak. For whatever reason, I thought at one time that that was what being a pastor was all about. And so, man, you talk about adding a lot of stress, you know, to your week, trying to come up with something new and original, and which, by the way, Anything that gets set up here, it's not original. You know, I mean, there have been so many people expounding on God's word over the years, faithful servants of God, that were kind of repeating some of the very things that have been said in times past. But that's my point, that my role isn't to come up with something original and new while I'm up here. My role is more along the lines of reminding you of what you already know in God's word. Let me show you a passage. And th this was the passage that brought this to my attention. 2 Peter chapter 1. So I'll always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. 
You see what Peter was saying? Peter was saying, there's going to come a time I'm going to check out. But until that time comes, I'm going to keep reminding you of what you already know so that when I'm gone, you will not forget what you need to know. Why is that so critically important? Well, to use Jesus' words, it's so that we will remain faithful until death. Because if we're faithful until death, he will give us the crown of life. He didn't, doesn't say, well, as long as you're faithful during a stretch of your life. He says, remain faithful until death. Run through the finish line. Run through it strong. Stay the course, and I'll reward you. That's the promise Jesus was given. We're going to have our communion at this time. And I want to encourage you. It's hard telling what this year, what we're going to encounter this year. We know we're going to have some changes here in the church um, involving some of the leadership, you know, changes, my role and Kurt's role. And, you know, we, we know that we're planning, preparing for that. But every year encounters change, both that is planned and that is unplanned. So there's going to be change of one level or another. We know we're going to encounter. There's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. There's going to be high points. There's going to be low points that we're going to experience throughout the year. But the thing that, that I want to challenge you to do now while you're taking the bread and remembering the sacrifice Jesus made on your behalf and you're drinking from the cup and you're reflecting on the blood that he shed on your behalf to purchase your salvation is, is I want to encourage you to not be a Demas. That this year, you're not going to be a Demas. If anything, you're going to be ramping things up in your service to the Lord, in living for him. Because Demas is an example of someone who failed to finish well. And that's not an example you want to be inspired by. We need to stay the course. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather here on the first day of a brand new year. And I pray, Lord, that this year that you are glorified in the life of this church and that you're glorified in each family represented in this church. In the way that we approach our lives, we approach each day, we approach our encounters, whether they be in our own home or at work or outside among friends. Lord, we pray that you are glorified. And we pray that by the life that we live and the faith that is an important um, um, core element of that life, we pray that you're pleased and that people are drawn toward you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Help us to make that better known to others. It's in Christ's name I pray.